Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I want to read the first 12 verses of that chapter. I want to entitle tonight's lesson, Pleasing, Pleasing God, Pleasing God. Starting with verse number one, amen, here this evening, the Bible says, Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul, besought him, desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than 10 days, he went down unto Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about, laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. This almost seems redundant to a lot of the other uh, chapters here lately leading to this one. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Again, tonight, I want to simply entitle this, Pleasing God. Pleasing God. Father, I come to you tonight. God, I understand the responsibility that you have, Lord, handed me, Lord Jesus, in this service. Lord, I do not take that lightly. God, I do not squander, Lord Jesus, the next hour, hour and a half, God, that we have, Lord Jesus, in this place. But God, I know, Lord God, every word, Lord, spoken, Lord Jesus, to the word of God is important. God, and it is the Lord God for the encouragement, it's for the instruction, it's for the rebuke, it's for the guidance. Lord, of us, God, is a people. I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, if they were begotten by the word of God, then I need not, Lord Jesus, place, Lord, any type of disvalue upon it. God, for I know there's power in it, Lord, to save, to set free, God, to heal, Lord, to minister. I pray, oh, Lord, tonight, God, touch, Lord, these lips of clay. God, this feeble mind, God, oft times it is, Lord, to adequately, Lord Jesus, God, convey, Lord, what I believe, Lord, that we have here, Lord, of this chapter, Lord, tonight. God, for your hearers, Lord Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And the church say amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated tonight. And always remember that our audience is always larger than here because we have a podcast audience. 
and months ago it would probably hover around 400 per day but it's almost double that anymore 800 per day we've reached over the half a million mark and uh, people subscribing and so on and so forth like that amen so there's always the podcast audience amen that's with us amen acts chapter 25 it's very easy i i it can get very redundant here in the past few chapters because we're like this is paul's fourth trial fourth time that he's on trial and so it can get very redundant you hear some of the same things you know he's did something wrong against the jews and their law he did something wrong against the temple he's done something wrong against rome and so it's very easy to bat your eye and lull off into sleepy time somewhere because it seems like we've heard all of this before and you might approach maybe wednesday night i'm being very un unimpressed right now pastor mcgee uh, by what's being said here in the narrative trial after trial it seems to no avail no verdict no no moving forward accusations have been laid to uh, the charge of paul and as even stated here in the first 12 verses they 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 have proven to be invalid they cannot they cannot be true and they are not true and what though I believe in a little bit of space, uh, reading, if you will, not so much so between the lines, but leading underneath the surface, I believe there is something being conveyed to us when we look at the life of Paul and these many trials, uh, literal trials, in court trials that he has already been through, yet we know that he has positioned himself, his life has set his face toward the will of God, what he what he interprets to be the will of God for his life and even even endorsed uh, and even uh, reaffirmed to him by the Lord himself. Remember, Paul has that desire to make it to Rome. The Lord has showed up at times in the night, stood by him and said, as you testified in Jerusalem, so you shall in Rome. So Paul must think that he's tracking right concerning the will of God. And so what I derive from all this, if Paul is tracking right concerning the will of God and he has confirmation from heaven, that Rome is one of his destinations, and yet he's had now at least four trials that they can't hang anything on him and put anything to his charge. I think there's something, a little principle that we can draw from this tonight, and that is this, that it shows us that a person may, it may not always be the case, but may endure a whole lot, if I say it like that, or endure much, in order for the will of God to be displayed in their life. I think Paul's a very good, very good example of that. And I'm not here to say that every person that does the will of God, they're going to have to endure a bunch of difficulty, heartache, and despair. That might be the case. There may be others that are doing the will of God, and it's easy street for them. There, there is no just thumbprint, well, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that. I believe every case is different concerning God's will being worked out in the life. But Paul is an example that in order for it to be displayed in his life, in order for him to ever reach that destination or that target of Rome that this man has and is enduring much so that God's will will become flowering, if you will, and blooming forth in his life. Not only that, I also, the life of Paul and what's happened to him, it also bespeaks of something else. And that is this, that it shows us that even our response during those difficult times have somewhat of a bearing on the outcome as well. Look very closely. Read those chapters over again. 
and just take a moment and consider how Paul has responded to the difficulty. How Paul has responded to another trial. You, you, you've, you've not had the ability to prove any type of injustice that I've done and yet another hearing. You remember tonight that Paul wrote, and I've told you this more than once, but we learn many times by repetition, that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, the book of Romans. He wrote his letter to the Romans before he ever visited Rome. He had never set foot there to Rome. He had never went there on a missionary journey prior to writing the book of Romans. He wrote Romans while he was in Corinth, while he was in the city of Corinth. And so whenever he is writing the Romans, uh, I believe that Paul's request, his idea, his prayer request, if you will, about the will, quote-unquote, the will of God, what he stated in Romans did not completely align with the reality of how it would be played out in his life. We all, I think, sometimes have an idea about what God's will is for our life or even for other people's lives and how that is going to manifest itself or be played out or how it's going to come into be or come into purpose. For Paul, the way that he was seeing it was not perhaps the way that it really would be. Amen. As a matter of fact, you remember Paul has this vision of going to Rome, but many times we had the vision, but we lack a lot of the details. We had the destiny, but we lack a lot of the pit stops and the rest areas along the way that we must visit. This is what Paul said in Romans 1 and verse number 9. Again, this is prior to ever visiting Rome. This is while he is in Corinth. This is prior to him going through the four trials that he's in right now. This is what he states to them. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, he said, I make mention of you, make mention of the Romans, always in my prayers. Look at verse 10, making requests. I make requests, I have prayer requests that I make to God. If by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now, I'm sitting on this side of Paul's writing, and I see the word that you would give me a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto Rome. If Paul, I'm not in Paul's mind, all right, but I can only look at two ways. If Paul was interpreting the word prosperous to mean without difficulty, he missed it. I mean, if before this all started, he's saying a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. And if he was meaning prosperous to mean without difficulty of ease, going to be very fanciful and, you know, so on, going to smell the flowers along the way and come to you, then Paul missed it. But if Paul meant that word prosperous to mean having opportunities to share Christ, then he nailed it. If prosperous was... If prosperous was ease, he missed it. But if it meant having opportunities to share Christ, then he nailed it. Because every one of these trials, before a mob, before the Sanhedrin court, before Felix and Drusilla, who come from a long line of Herods, now before Festus, he will before King Agrippa, going to come before Caesar. If he's looking at a prosperous journey concerning the will of God of having opportunity to share the gospel, 
having opportunity to declare that the Christ that they knew to be dead was actually alive and he had risen in the resurrection. If he meant it by that, then Paul, you put the nail on, you hit the nail on the head. It is prosperous in that way because had you went from where you were just to Rome with ease, with nothing more, you may not have had these ministry opportunities with kings and Gentiles and the Jewish people. You may not have had these ministry opportunities. So what is that saying to us tonight? That saying to us is this, is that our road of God's will may not always be with ease. Sometimes for some, we may have to endure some things, but also the way that we respond to those things will also bear on the outcome in the in can someone say amen because think of it for a moment he responded very well during these hard times that really were times of opportunity he could have he could have there is nothing that stopped paul that during his first trial he could have easily at that moment appealed unto caesar of rome and according to being a roman citizen as he was if a Roman citizen appealed to, to Caesar at any time, then to Caesar he must go. No questions asked. They didn't have to have a hearing about whether or not to send him. He had to go. And so Paul could have at the very first trial, if he wanted to, make his appeal to Caesar. And to Caesar he'd have went to Rome. He had already arrived and he had already been there. But I believe he made the choice at the right time because had he had made the appeal, prematurely he would have missed some ministry chances along the way you've heard us say it i don't mind being redundant amen because someone's probably forgot it anyway but my wife and i we always abide by this simple little rule that god's will is just as important as god's timing god's will is just as important as god's timing Throughout scripture, it had been God's will for people. It's God's will for Paul to go to Rome. But it wasn't his will for him to go to Rome at the first trial. Amen. His timing is just as important as his will. And just because the time may not be now does not negate that it's still not his will for Paul to go to Rome. Just because the time he may not have been now to appeal at the first trial does not mean, Paul, you're not supposed to be in Rome. But God's, uh, let me reiterate, his timing is just as important as his will. Even look at it. If you look at it in New Testament, something that bears this out, I think, profoundly than anything else is the very life of Jesus Christ. How many times the people going to do some type of harm to Jesus and they did not or could not or his common saying was this, my hour is not yet my hour is not yet was he saying it wasn't the will of god for him to be hung upon a cross and spread wide no but the timing of it was not proper what does he say though while his feet is there in the dirt of the garden of gethsemane and in a distance he sees staves and swords approaching his way he tells his disciples to sleep on because my hour has come uh-huh. the timing just as important as the will. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 34, this is Paul, this is Paul writing. This is almost a little bit, a little bit comical because in, in Romans, we see the writing of Paul before the trial, before visiting Rome, and then we see Hebrews here. It's kind of like post some of this stuff. He says in verse 34, 
For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. And he's writing to the Hebrews, probably more particularly Hebrews that were his friends and acquaintances. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds. He's talking about when he was in prison. They had compassion on him. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. He says, cast not away therefore your confidence. He's telling us, don't cast away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Look at verse 36. This, this is what Paul learned. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. You know what Paul is giving to us? Hindsight. What do they say about hindsight? 2020. Paul is giving us hindsight as he addresses the Hebrews. More than likely, likely, according to verse 34, he is talking even to some that visited him when he was in prison. Maybe even some that was here in Caesarea. Amen. Because the Bible says that he, he wasn't he was still allowed to have guests and there was acquaintances that could still come you can see that in Acts 24 and verse 23 that he had liberty that his acquaintances could come and minister unto him so it's possible that some of them had come to speak to Paul and so he's speaking to those that had compassion on him while he was still yet in his bonds and he tells them he tells them this is my perspective now he said of God's will God's will that's perfected. This is my, this is my, this is my hindsight right now. He says, stay confident. He said, because let me put it in McGee terms. You need patience to write out God's will to completion. He said, you have need of patience after that God's will so that you might receive the promise. So you, you need some patience to be able to ride out the ups and the downs, the left and rights of God's will till it comes to full completion in your life. Before he's saying, how every minute, we don't know, we could argue about it, I guess. Prosperous journey for the will of God. After it all, he's saying, you need some patience. You need some patience to ride out God's will to its place of fulfillment, to its place of completion. So again, this is the fourth time that Paul's been on trial. He was before the angry mob. He was before the, the hierarchy of the Jews, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the high priest, the Sanhedrin court, those 70, 71 people that he stood before, Felix, and now Festus. Festus comes right after Felix. Felix served for a couple years, and here comes Festus. He is a new governor of Caesarea. And he's certainly of a different character historically according to history than Felix was. But he is also somewhat more, he's less informed than what Felix was. Felix, if you remember, was married to Drusilla. The Bible says that she was a Jewess. She was a Jewish. And which meant that Felix could consult his wife concerning some of these things about the Jews. Because she was familiar with that. She was a Jewess. And even some of the issues that they had concerning uh, Paul, the Jews had concerning Paul. She, he could consult his wife because she was a Jewess. But Festus didn't have that privilege. He didn't have that Jewish line, if you will, to be able to lean upon. And so as a result of it, it seems like he is less informed. He, he lacks knowledge concerning about Paul for number one. We see that right here in chapter 25. They had to inform him about Paul. He, he had lack of knowledge concerning the Jews and their religion. And we even see that he had a lack of knowledge. And this is a big one. But he had a lack of knowledge even of the man Christ, Jesus. And so Festus is a newbie. 
Festus is a newbie. And as it is sometimes with rookies, they aim to please. They aim to please. And so the difficulty with Festus is going to be this. Trying to balance pleasing the Jews and at the same time pleasing the Roman governmental officials and leaders. He wants to be well looked at in the eyes of the Jews and he wants to be well looked at in the eyes of the Roman government. And so as we start out in chapter number 25, he takes office and almost immediately after he takes office, three days the Bible says, he goes to Jerusalem to visit the Jews. And he comes there, and no doubt he's going there to acquaint himself with these people that he's going to be over them. Remember, the Jewish religion had every bit of blessing and sanction from the Roman government. So he's going to acquaint himself with that. He doesn't have much knowledge of that. He wants to be pleasing to them. I'll go visit Jerusalem. We'll hobnob and rub shoulders and, you know, getting good with these boys and see what takes place. But no sooner than he has arrived at Jerusalem, the Jews say, well, this is the new governor. Boy, do we got an earful to give him. Now remember, it's been two years since Paul has been placed into the custody of Felix. And Felix held on to him for two years. He, he left his office. Festus comes in. Paul's been there to, for two years. And the first thing off their lips that they want to fill Festus's ears with is this. Paul, that low down, no good, dirty scoundrel. I'll tell you what he's done. He's turned everybody against the Jewish law. He spoke against the temple. He brought a, a person that was a Gentile to, that he, into the temple. He shouldn't have done that. He's, even, he's almost even raised insurrection against the Roman government. Man, they are filling this newbie's ears with everything concerning Paul. They are blasting Paul. And so Felix, Felix, or not Felix, but Festus is wanting to, you know, please the Jews. And these people, you know, these people are not just even con convinced about convicting Paul they would like to if they could even kill you know Paul they're holding a little bit of a grudge in my opinion two years have passed by for crying out loud and the first thing that comes to mind is Paul and so as they fill his ear with their rage they also in the same breath are desiring a favor you can just look through the scriptures here with me they desire a favor of Festus Festus this is what you would like to do we'd like to do we'd like for you to bring Paul to Jerusalem <laughs> We've been down this road before. Festus don't realize maybe all this. The Jews do, and Paul does. They wanted to pull the O, have him come to Jerusalem, let us lay in wait and kill him trick. Now, that's a lot of hyphens between all those words, but <laughs> that's what the Bible says. They were wanting him to bring him to Jerusalem, bring Paul to Jerusalem. And basically it's saying whenever you do that, we're going to, we're going to come upon him and we're going to slay him, kill him. It makes me think about the 40 that took the little oath, you know, that until we kill him, we're not going to eat or drink. Remember? I don't know if these are these same guys and they waited for two years. Probably not. Probably not. They, they weaseled their way out of that. But I wouldn't doubt this, some of them getting back on the glory train, you know, for this all over again. But, 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 we understand that Festus, He's, he's a little wiser because while he wants to please the Jews, and that sounds like a great idea to please the Jews, he also knows Roman law. And Roman law says if they're going to have a trial, these accusers are going to have to come to Paul. They're going to have to state the same. Here we go again. So, so wanting to please them, the Roman government, he says, no, I can't send Paul. And I know this is a narrative tonight, guys. This is just the storyline. I'm sorry it's the way it is, but it is what it is. It's the Bible, and it's profitable for rebuke and reproof and doctrine amen someone say amen 
And so he says, well, I'm not going to see him in Jerusalem. We're going to keep him here in Caesarea. But if you all would like, you can join me in my trip back and we will have a trial. And you can state your accusations against him. What's Festus doing? He's pleasing the Romans. So, man, you know, I'm walking a pretty tight line right now. You know, I went to Jerusalem. I'm pleasing the Jews. And maybe this don't please them that Paul's not coming to Jerusalem. But it pleases the Roman government that we're going to have a trial in Caesarea. So this is great. Someone say amen. <laughs> and so what Festus provides to the Jews is the same thing that Felix provided to them. He'll be tried at Caesarea. You're welcome to come. State your accusations if this man is indeed wicked. The Bible says in verses 7 and 8 that they laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not, surprise, no, which they could not prove. And the Bible says that Paul, in verse number 8, answered for himself and basically does the same old, same old. I didn't do anything against the law of the Jews or the temple or Caesar, which in essence is Rome. Now, I'd state all that to make a little point. I do have some points I can pull out of this black and white text here tonight, all right. Said all that to play, state this point. I've often, as a pastor and maybe perhaps otherwise, have suggested to people that our lives are best defended against false accusations by how we just live our lives. With that, I'm not saying I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's necessarily wrong uh, with a person denying false accusations. I don't think it's necessarily wrong for a person to defend themselves, as even Paul answered for himself. But I believe up mostly that the best defense that we have is the life that we live in righteousness and blamelessness. Absolutely. I, I've told I, even people, there's some people sometimes to get real worried about uh, people that maybe even bowed mouth the first apostolic church. They come to me with news, you know, I so and so and they're saying this and you know, you go do something about it. I said, I'm not going to do anything about it. I said, just let the life of the church. Time will prove what needs to be proved. And that goes forward with our own lives. There's many times you don't have to raise a finger of defense or a voice of defense. You continue to live your life in a reputable way. Mm -hmm. Live your life in a reputable way of righteousness and blamelessness, and that will be your best defense. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 15, along that route and along that way. The Bible says, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That was Peter's recommendation. That was Peter's recommendation. This, he even stated so much so, it's the will of God that just through your actions of life, that will silence the ignorance of voices that are speaking these things about you, concerning you, so on and so forth. You hold your peace. And live your life. And so with that being said, even consider, if you will, when you consider the qualifications, they're deacons, they're bishops, but whenever you boil it all down in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, boil it all down, they're servants. Okay, they're servants, they're leaders, they're people, they're you and I. 
Whenever you look at the qualifications of those type of people, bishop, deacon, servants, leaders, there is something that stands out first and foremost in both of those lists, the one that's recorded in 1 Timothy 3 and the one that's recorded in Titus 1. There's something that stands out first and foremost, and that is this qualification, that they be blameless. That they be blameless. And what that word literally means, blameless, is nothing to take hold upon. Nothing to take hold upon. In other words, there must be nothing in that individual's life that others can take hold of and attack. You're leaving them, it's kind of like a cup without a handle. You're leaving them without anything to be able to take hold of. As a matter of fact, the word is a metaphor and it's taken from the case of, of an expert and a skillful boxer. The origin of the word, an expert and skillful, skillful boxer. Who, according to boxing, would defend every part of his body. So much so that it would be impossible for his opponent to give one hit. Because he is so well defended. And so what it implies, that the notion of being blameless implies that you just have a good track record of behavior. You hearing me? A good track. What's the first thing if someone is voted in or at least running for a political office? What is the first thing all the opponents going to do? Look for dirt, aren't they? They're going to try to look for an occasion where they can get a handle. Huh? A handle on something. The best defense. Again, is living a righteous, blameless life in so much that no one has any immoral handles, behavioral handles that they can grab on to. So just live your life respectable unto God. So here we go. That's point number two. In order to please the Jews, Festus wanted Paul after they went through this little trial and he says, I'm innocent. He kind of comes up with this idea, Festus does. They already wasn't going to take him to Jerusalem, but now he's asking Paul, would you mind going to Jerusalem? Here we are, he's waffling back and forth. Please the Jews, please Rome, please the Jews, please Rome. Would you mind going to Jerusalem and being tried there? And I'll be the moderator, you know. I'll be there, I'll be the moderator. You go and do that and everything will be okay. And in his mind he's thinking... Get me some brownie points with the Jews. But the Bible says, basically, that Paul, he knew the Jews. Man, he just had, remember, the big entourage with the chief captain that left Jerusalem to come over because of perhaps he may be killed. He knew the Jews. He knew that in this last trial with Festus that they couldn't lay anything on him, that he was innocent. He knew that there's a little bit of maneuvering going on here. I have not done anything wrong. And he even said in verse 20, And Festus, thou knowest that to be true. You know just as well as I do, I've not done anything wrong. And so every trial that I've had, Festus, have proved the same. They've had the same accusations. I've came out clean. I've not done anything wrong. And listen, it wasn't that Paul wasn't willing to accept whatever was coming to him. If there was anything. Paul even stated, he said, if there's something I've done wrong, so be it. He said, if it requires of me death, so be it. So Paul's not afraid to own up to something that he has done wrong. He's even willing to die. If it necessitates that, that he's done something wrong like that, 
Let, let me say something about that. Paul is exemplary whenever it comes to showing forth proper Christianity. Because Christians are the worst ones to defend rights and then not to own up to the wrongs. We're all about defending, you know, this is right and this is, you know, you make sure you give me that and you, you know, don't you infringe upon my Christianity and my rights. But we have a hard time sometimes owning our wrongs. You know what Paul was saying? He said, if I've done something wrong, I'll own it. Even if it requires death. He said, whatever consequences are the consequences. If I have legitimate, you know what he's doing? Dude, being a great Christian, he's not only defending his rights, but he says, if I've legitimately done something wrong, I'll pay for what it is. Amen. Amen. And so here's Paul, though. He is innocent. <laughs> Luckily for him. He is innocent, but he wasn't going to allow someone to hand him over to a bunch of false accusers. He wasn't going to allow someone to hand him over to a bunch of killers. And so at this point in time, he makes his appeal. And it's properly timed. I believe it's in great conjunction with the will of God. Amen. That he made his appeal to Caesar. And he had a right to. And Festus could not deny him that right. It would have to be followed through upon. And he would have to be given and taken to Caesar. Amen. Not only that, making his appeal to Caesar would further bring about even the will of God for him. Him making his destiny of Rome that he envisioned, that he felt, that God even reaffirmed to him in his life. Making his appeal would aid him in getting him to Rome at the proper time. At the proper time. Now, now listen here for a moment. Caesar, Caesar's just a title, okay? I think everybody knows that, but just in case you don't. Caesar is just a title here. The Caesar who is at this time in command is one by the name of Nero. Nero in history, legitimate history, was known for murdering Christians. Particularly those that were not bending or bowing to what they had in place known as emperor worship or Caesar worship. With that being said... <laughs> It almost makes Paul's appeal to Caesar. You didn't want to go among the killers. <laughs> but you're making yourself an appeal to somebody who is a murderer of Christians. Particularly those that don't bend or bow to worshiping the emperor. Or worshiping, so Paul, you mean you got a death? Which way, I mean, which way is it, buddy? I mean, just let us know. However, again, we must understand Paul has knowledge that others don't have. He has that knowledge that God told him that you're going to give your testimony in Rome as well. Thou must bear witness in Rome as well. And so here's what I believe Paul was conditioning in his heart and mind. Though he knew the threat was real, he knew the promise was more real. He knew there's a real threat, but he knew what God's promise was even more real. In other words, I am not going to go with Rome. Go to Rome. I might die there. Which he did. I might die there, but I'll not die there without letting my witness being made known. I'm not going to be taken prematurely because it's God's will that I must bear witness in Rome. Threat's real, but his promise 
is even more so. Later we read, we read in the scripture, you'll read in verses 13 through 22, whenever Festus is retelling the whole story of verses 1 through 12. Back unto Agrippa. And Festus refers to Caesar as Augustus. Augustus is not his first name. Augustus is not even a proper name. Augustus is nothing more but an adjective describing the Caesar. Augustus means this, honorable one, glorified one, dignified one, worshiped one. So when someone said Augustus Caesar, they were saying the honorable one Caesar, the dignified one Caesar, the worshiped one Caesar. Remember, it's all about this Caesar worship, emperor worship. So Augustus was just an adjective that he's the dignified, the honorable, the worshiped one Caesar. And so notice whenever Paul made his appeal to Caesar, he did not make his appeal to Augustus Caesar. The honored, dignified, worshiped one Caesar. No, no, Paul's not going to stoop there. He just made his appeal to Caesar. He left off the part about him supposedly being the glorified, the worshipped one because Paul only knew one that was glorified, one that was worshipped, one that was honored, and that was Christ the Lord. Now here's something interesting to me, maybe not to you, that's fine. Whenever Rome took over the empires of the world, Remember our Daniel sessions? You have Babylonian, then the Medo-Persian took over them, and then the Grecian took over them. You remember that? Some of you do. And then Rome took over them. And so each time this happened, the landmass, the people, all the provinces were just increasing, increasing because they were swallowing up these other kingdoms, these other empires. And so whenever Rome took over the Grecian Empire, Rome was a little bit worried. This is the largest landmass and the most amount of people that we've ever had in the history of our empire. How in the world are we going to keep this increased empire of people safeguarded from fragmenting, safeguarded from, you know, being separated? How are we going to keep this together? And the only solution that Rome could come up with to keep their vast empire now from splitting and separating was by starting the Caesar worship or the empire worship. They said the only way that we can stay together is by having a unified object of worship. Caesar, empire, worship. Big deal, Brother McGee. No big deal. You know, the Bible talks about the, the, the children of this world being wiser than those of the faith. You know why? Because what they come to idea was this. The way that we're going to keep the people together from splitting and from fragmenting is that we all congregate around the same object of worship. That's good advice for the church. That's good advice for the church. Because if the world could properly estimate the weight and importance of worship, how much more should the church properly estimate the weight of worship? It was for Rome, in their understanding, the answer to their unity. No different is it for the church. When we enter here and our object of worship is the same. Oh, yeah. Whenever we sit together and I'm really here with the object of worship and I'm not thinking about, I hope he gets done before 830. Because my favorite show's coming on. Well, hmm, walk that log. Yeah, yeah. It brings 
unity. It brings unity. Not for them it was for the world, but for us the application is for the church. Because see, what would happen is at a certain time of the year, the Roman Empire, each person in the Roman Empire at a certain time of the year was expected to take a pinch of incense, throw it down upon the fire and declare, Caesar is Lord. What does Lord mean? What's Lord mean? Does Lord mean anything to anybody? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm really looking for some interaction here. What does Lord mean? Who? Who said I heard it? No, what would you say? Boom. Same difference. Thank you, guys. We got it from the higher heavens up there. Ruler, master. Caesar is master. Caesar is ruler. What's that mean? What Caesar says goes. What Caesar instructs goes. That was all a part of their worship. We're going to keep unified whenever we all have one instructor of the orchestra. The master, the ruler. That's what they were saying. So they would come under and do that. Then it's no wonder to me if you would do a, a reference on where the words Lord and Jesus come together in the book of Acts. They're going to pop up over and over and over and over again. You know, more times than not, rather than him just be spoken of as the Christ or spoken of as Jesus or spoken of as Jesus Christ, many times all through your throne down, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder, because they wanted to implant something in the minds of the people that was in an environment of the Roman Empire that were trying to give their allegiance to Caesar about him being Lord. They wanted to plant in the minds of the believers there is only one Lord and he is Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ he's your master he's your ruler and if we all plant ourselves under the umbrella of knowing that he's the master and the ruler it will bring a unity to the church that no force gates of hell shall prevail against the church it all ties back to their worship they were trying to combat the surroundings of their time. But every time they said the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a declaration being made about who was Lord. While these were over here having their little pinch of incense thrown on fire saying Caesar is Lord, all the apostolics were saying the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Master of your life. Oh, that's a mouthful. Ruler of your life. He gives the dictates. And we give the obedience. <laughs> so in Festus's, and that's a mouthful too, attempt to please the Jews. Paul's appeal to Caesar then came as a final result. And what that did was this. Kind of put Festus in a little quandary here. Because now, as a result of this, he was going to need to please Rome. Think about it here with me for a moment. Festus, we got a new governor. Think about it, just on a very common practical side. We have a new governor, governor at Caesarea. Within his first 13 days, thereabout, he already has somebody that's making an appeal to Caesar because they feel like they're not being properly attended to by the new governor. How would you like that? You know, you go, you go to work at your new job and the first 13 days there's already complaint coming to headquarters. 
So he's been trying to do this balancing act, please Jews, please Rome. He said, whoo-hoo. Not only that, but whenever a person made an appeal to Caesar that were in the court system, just as Lysias, the chief captain, had to do with Felix, they're going to have to write a letter to who they're going to and say, this is the charges against this man. Festus, what are the charges against the Apostle Paul? Um, uh, um, uh, well, see, uh, mm-hmm. he don't have anything to write. He don't have everything, anything to say. Even himself knows everything that's been brought against him has been brought against him wrongly. So he's in a very similar position as Elias was. They have nothing to write. And Festus even almost even admits in the last verse of chapter 25, basically, you know, what are his crimes? He's kind of asking, you know, Agrippa, what in the world am I to do? What, what are the crimes that are laid against him? And so Festus don't want to appear as an idiot before his boss. He don't want to appear an idiot before Caesar and for that matter possibly jeopardize his new employment, you know, his newfound position if he doesn't have something to write to him. So in Acts 25 and verse 13, the Bible states this. So he has this dilemma. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. Now again, I'm not going to read back through there because he's basically retelling the story we've already told for the first 12 verses. But Agrippa and Bernice showing up at this time, man, Festus is looking at this. This is providence. They've made their way to Caesarea. They're there to salute him, if you will. It's a good old slap on the back for the new job type of thing. They're congratulating him for being the new governor. And after Festus got a little bit acquainted with them and seen that he could bear his heart to them, he shares with them his dilemma. I'm glad you came and congratulate me. And they were there for certain days. He was feeling it out. But then he said, you know what? I'm going to share my dilemma with this man. I got a problem here on my hands because... I've been trying to please the Jews and trying to please Rome, and now I'm left with a deficit, it seems like, on the Rome side. Look at it again, the Scripture. Look at these pleasing acts. What? Festus goes to Jerusalem to start off with. What? Pleasing the Jews. Huh? Paul, though, must be tried right here, and the accusers must come, according to Roman law, please the Romans. And then what does he do? He's asked after the trial. He says, you know what? Paul, will you go to Jerusalem so you can be tried? Pleasing the Jews. Huh? But then Paul makes an appeal to Caesar, and to Caesar he must go. That's Roman side, please in Rome. And so amid, watch this now, amid all of this recounting of events, pleasing this one, pleasing that one, we realize, and we'll find it here in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 25, we realize that Festus has greatly minimized a certain aspect about this whole trial in the process of trying to please the Jews and trying to please the Rome. He has missed an aspect of pleasing in reality. The Bible says in verse 18 of Acts 25. So he's retelling the story, okay? He's retelling the story here, how how they came. and He was at the judgment seat, and they commanded Paul to be brought forth, and he was tried. And verse 18 says, against whom, speaking of Paul, when the accusers stood up, that's the Jews that came from Jerusalem, they brought none accusation of such things as I suppose. He's saying, I wasn't expecting them to say what they said. They're wanting this man dead. And the things that they brought against him, I thought, that doesn't even 
you know, seem to line up. You're one of the men dead, and those are the accusations you have against him. He says in verse 19, but had certain questions against This is what they had. They had certain questions against him of their own superstition. That word that in the actual Greek can be translated superstition or religion. So that is real, the real thrust here. They, they had questions against him of their own religion. And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So Festus is saying, since, since these guys basically wanted him dead, the accusations that they bring against him are not even close to what I imagined since they wanted him dead. As a matter of fact, they were just mostly about their religion and about this guy named Jesus that, that some were saying that he was dead and Paul was saying he was alive. Now watch this. If one is saying Jesus was dead and Paul is saying that he is alive, then there are either two things going on here. Either Jesus never died, which we know not to be true because everybody that was at Golgotha, that were eyewitnesses of the account. So he, 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 either, he either never died or if they said he was dead and Paul was saying he was resurrected, then he, or that he's alive, then he must have resurrected. And that goes back to the hub of what we've been talking about. For weeks on weeks. But here is the sad part to the story. Festus, this whole Jesus Christ. So I'm saying he's dead. Somebody's, he's just kind of like saying this is inconsequential. This is trivial. This is insignificant. Talking about this one man, Jesus, whether he's dead or alive, it's kind of like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Dead or alive, this man Christ. I thought it was really going to be something. I thought he was really going to have some accusation. But this just talking about this man, Jesus Christ, dead or alive. What's the, big, what's the big deal? Let me tell you something. We're not too far removed from Acts 25. Jesus Christ, dead or alive. What's the big deal? Resurrection happened, didn't happen. What's the big deal? Was it an empty tomb? Did someone steal him away? Did this? What's the big deal? There is a big deal. A modern movement that was started in the 1990s, and I'm headed toward, I'm headed toward landing. A modern movement started in the 1990s was a group of scholars that claimed that they had an authority on the Christian faith, and they started these things that they called Jesus seminars, Jesus seminars. And a leader of these supposed Jesus seminars was quoted saying this. Now, these are people that supposedly, according to their own standard, have an authority on the Christian faith. This is what their leader said. As a child... I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. You know what he's saying? Physical raising or non-raising of the body? What's the big deal? Trivial. Inconsequential insignificant don't really matter but when I read again and I've read them before the words of the apostle Paul himself of 1 Corinthians 15 17 and if Christ be not raised your faith is vain ye everybody say me are yet 
in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep. Who's that? Those who are already dead. In Christ are perished. What that means. When you died, you died and there is no afterlife. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If this whole aspect of a Jesus Christ only affects the life that we presently live upon this earth, if that's where the only impact, if that's where the only regard is, we're miserable. But Paul's stating that the Jesus Christ that he knows and that they knew did not just impact the life that they lived on this earth, but the life that they lived beyond the grave. Someone say yes. If he be not raised, your faith is in vain. That, folks, is not inconsequential. That is not trivial. That is not insignificant. I'm glad when those ladies went there on that early morn, they found an empty tomb. And, folks, the Jews even themselves said, has the disciples stolen the body away? Which goes to prove that the tomb was empty. Huh? And if they supposedly stole the body away, if you are by a far stealing the body away and people are going to be taking you to the stake, killing you and taking your life for that perfection, why wouldn't you reveal the body at that moment in time to save your own life? Because they didn't take it away. Because he literally died. And three days later, he literally got up. And yes, it was a body of a different form and a different kind. He could walk through a wall, yes. But he resurrected. And because of that, I have hope. Because of that, you have hope. Because of that, our showing up on a Wednesday night's not in vain. It's not trivial. It's not insignificant. And so, Festus, while you're trying to please Jews and please this one, please that one, you missed the whole concept of trying to please God. Folks, I'm calling this to a place of pleasing the master, pleasing the ruler, worshiping the master, worshiping the ruler. Honey, you can please family, friend, foe, job, all these other things. But whenever the world comes to an end and the smoke settles, we better have pleased the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stand with me here tonight. Why, brother? Because the redemption of mankind is based upon it. For that matter, to go a step further, the restitution of all things. Uh-huh. The restitution of all things, the new heaven, the new all of those is based upon it. That's not inconsequential. That's not insignificant. That's not trivial. I put that as a pretty big piece of the puzzle. Amen. Amen. Please, please, God. Please, God. And so while we have people out here of these Jesus seminar groups propagating, it's not no big deal. I'm telling you what. It is a big deal. And don't be taken by the lies and the deceits of groups under the banners of Jesus. Authority, I think not. It's kind of ironic. There would be no Christian faith if there was no Jesus. Authority's on the Christian faith. 
Seriously? Let's pray before I get on some soapbox. Lord Jesus, I thank Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.